You're listening to Banter, a BMX podcast with John Dowger and Anthony Berardi. Our next guest hails from Upland, California. He was an avid BMX rider during the early 80s, participating in racing and then got into freestyle. He was also interested in photography from a young age, with black and white images being his preferred style. Talented behind the camera and a world-class skate park in his hometown, he documented 80s BMX with some amazing images. He would go on to produce a zine called Tricks and More. Content in the zine was of his friends and also some huge names in the early days of our sport. Greats like Mike Dominguez, Eddie Fiola, and Martin Apareo. After sitting in a box for decades, many of these images have come to light for the first time in his book, Concrete and Smog. We'd like to introduce author and photographer, Bill Batchelor, to the show. Welcome to the show, Bill. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Oh, man. I'm, I, I was so stoked to get your book in the mail because... Um, just like reading through it brought back a flood of memories and and some of the images and the, and the scenes of uh, Upland like brought me back to like you know pictures I saw and and BMX action and BMX plus and and uh, yeah so it's a great book I recommend it highly. <clears throat> I, yes, I, I agreed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah, it. Man. it re- I love it. It uh, really brought me back too. That's part of the whole process of doing this. It was. It was a, t- a complete time capsule for me, and it was a kind of an adventure I went on for the past year and a half. So, Bill, take us back to, like, how did you get into BMX? Um, what was it like? You know, what was the time frame? That sort of thing. Let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I was born in 1971 in Upland, California, which is Southern California. And um, I don't know when BMX came into my life. It's It's been it was part of it as far back as I can remember. I, I touch on it in the book. I know we all had my friends. We all had older brothers. I didn't have an older brother, but my friends did, you know, they rode BMX. They were probably the 70 mid seventies, kind of late seventies guys. We all rode bikes. Uh, it was motocross pretty early on in terms of the type of bike. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly when we switched, but it was probably late seventies. And the magazines like BMX Action, Action Now, BMX Plus were all part of that as far back as I can remember. I mean, I know as a kid, I would go to the supermarket with my mom and I would grab that magazine. You know, it it took a few years before I actually could afford to subscribe. But BMX and that whole culture goes all the way back as far as I can remember. So let's say age nine, maybe. Um, I don't, eight's probably a little early. You know, nine, ten, definitely for sure. And like most kids, we were running around on our bikes all day outside, jumping off stuff, getting into trouble, you know, just outdoors all day on your bike. And um, that was our life. And being in Southern California, it was there. There were racetracks all over. And so I th- I don't know. It goes all the way back. So did you actually race, Bill, or did you, uh, you know, you just wanted to race? I know, I know when we talk about it in Canada back in the day, we didn't have any tracks. We we looked at the magazines, we wanted to race, but there was nothing to race. So we got into jumping and then in, ultimately into flatland and, and freestyle. Oh, we sand Araska Park. We, we, we did, but <laughs> how, how many times did you race there, John? Once. <laughs> Once. <laughs> no, um, I think it's interesting, Southern California, like, you're talking pre-ET, 
right? And ET, yeah. I think, really exposed BMX to well, certainly myself, and yeah. you know, and you guys were doing it before, but I think it was kind of documenting that Arizona. Well, it was filmed in Arizona, but it was California. It was kind of the, the Hollywood thing, right? And uh, you're yeah, one of those I think kids. For- yeah, for all of us, ET changed the game, and I was mm-hmm. well. It came out in 1982, so I was 11. Uh, we were already doing this stuff. Was it 82? Was, was it yeah, that far 82. back? 82. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's those scenes where they're jumping down the terraced hillsides where they're building the housing developments. My whole neighborhood was like that. Just south, you know, the block south of me was a, a long slope, and they terraced all the lots, and we jumped it constantly. And that's sort of, you know, we live that ET life. Sure. Um, in terms of racing, yes, I did. I don't know when I started. I, it might have been 82. I definitely raced through 83. Um, did a fair number of tracks in the Southern, Calif- Southern California circuit, Norco, Azusa, San Bernardino, Chino. Uh, Pipeline eventually added a track. So if we back up a little bit, you know, I grew up in Upland, California, which is the eastern edge of L.A. County, kind of inland as you you know, at the time it was sort of the gateway toward the desert and now it's, it's pretty built up past there. But, um, the pipeline skate park was in my hometown and, and in 1982 and in, in order to kind of keep the doors open and draw more customers, they took out part of the park and installed a BMX track. And I know I raced there quite often. So I would say I raced probably for two years. I don't know what started it. Um, I was doing other team sports, soccer and, you know, baseball and that kind of thing, but they were getting boring. And once I started racing, it took over and I dropped all the other stuff, but it was just hard to get to some of the, the far flung tracks, like in Chandler, Arizona, places like that. So, so at this time with Upland, when they put in the BMX track, you still couldn't ride the park yet. Could you, with your bike, it was it strictly skate, the actual uh, park. You could. And I don't know oh, exactly which year it switched over, probably about 82. So, you know, if, to go short history of skateboarding, it, it peaked out in the 70s and they built all these parks. And by the early 80s, skateboarding was pretty dead. It just, it just, I don't know what, you know, it died off. It's cyclical, like a lot of sports mm-hmm. and a lot of parks closed and there were two or three remaining by the early 80s. And Pipeline was one and Del Mar Skate Park in uh, Del Mar Skate Ranch down in San Diego was the second the pipeline made the decision to allow bikes in there, which was very controversial, obviously. And, um, and around the same time they put the track in, but what it did is it renewed, brought renewed life to the park and all these kids started showing up with their bikes. So, um, you know, again, with, I was racing, but like a lot of kids, we were looking at what Bob Harrow was doing in the BMX action trick team and in these wedge ramps and all this other stuff. And so we kind of got, interested in that and so we started like most bmx kids we did a little bit of everything just to keep busy stay on a bike yep um, bill i got a question for you mm-hmm. regarding the park itself i think it's really interesting i only learned this looking at your book that the full pipe was basically made because of mount baldy which is the full pipe that is notorious like uh, morgan wade looped it you know it's i, I actually went there 15 16 years ago on a little bmx uh, show tour and we, we, it was an epic voyage. I mean, we had to figure out where to park and like hop over these fences and like really felt like we were part of like this history, you know, because that place is famous and it must have been so famous that it was in this original skate park. Like to me, it's just amazing that that's what influenced that full pipe. Yeah. And it, it, as funny as it is, it was actually in my neighborhood. 
the Baldy Pipe. So, so you've been there. We were... Oh yeah, uh, yeah, no. Yeah. And people so, must have like roller skated it back in the day. Is that what's going yeah. on? Really it's debatable words. when people started hitting Baldy Pipe. It's in yeah. the late '60s, definitely by the early '70s. Wow, skateboarders were riding that pipe. That pipe, and to explain it to people who don't understand, there's a a dam that there, Upland is up against like some, some small mountains, and they built a dam in the '50s. And so there's an overflow pipe within the dam that allows to release too much, you know, if there's too much pressure, too much water. And it sends it down a channel into the valley. Well, Baldy Pipe is literally this 24, 20 foot diameter pipe that sticks out of the dam. But it's in a pretty far flung area. Uh, it's an unincorporated part of the county. And to get there, you know, you have to traverse over a bunch of scrub and rocks and rattlesnakes. It, it's not easy. <laughs> and then often you'd get in there and then the sheriff would show up and kick everyone out. Or there'd be locals who weren't real thrilled with bikes showing up, that kind of thing. So Baldy was well known within the skate community in Badlands. You know, you had the, the Venice Dogtown crew in the 70s, and then you had the Badlands crew, which is in, in Upland and that area. And so when Don Hoffman, who built the pipeline, he convinced his parents to build a skate park. I mean, Don wasn't a kid. He was already in his 20s by then. Um he built the pipe as an, an homage to Baldy Pipe and tried to recreate it as close as possible. I mean, you've been to the original pipe and it's several hundred feet long and it goes off into blackness, but um, <laughs> that was the impetus for the whole pipeline skate park. Amazing. I never knew that. Yeah. It makes sense. And they're still building full pipes in skate parks today, probably because of that. Yeah. I, you know, they're not easy to ride or skate, but so. No. Back to my life, you know, I was a, a BMX kid in my neighborhood and I built a little track in my yard and we were jumping everywhere. But we'd also, as we got older, we'd take little adventures off to Baldy Pipe and sneak in there and and get up to no good. And, awesome. you know, it was it was exciting when you're, you're a kid. It's dangerous. and It was exciting you know. to me and I was probably in my early 30s. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Tell us more about the park. I mean, I mean, I know some of these people that are listening right now probably have your book, probably a lot of them, mm -hmm. but, uh, and you gave us a good amount of information, but yeah, your dad was cool enough to let you build a track. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. It sounds cool. I'm, I'm sorry. You broke up on that last bit. Just tell us more about your part, uh, your, your BMX track in your backyard and your dad letting you build oh. that. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, like a lot of kids, we jumped around everywhere, and I was fortunate enough to live on a, a little parcel of land that was pretty much unplanted. It was just rocks and weeds and stuff, and my friend, who was my riding buddy, his dad had a bunch of tractors, and so we called, you know, we asked him, hey, can you help us build this track? So we drew it out on paper, and this was at the time probably when we were we were racing or maybe right before that. And so one Saturday morning, he came down with a tractor, just carved out a whole track in my, you know, it, I don't want to call it the backyard, but it was behind our house and it was sort of unused land. And we literally had a little starting hill, about six feet high, that would go down and some jumps and berms and stuff. But the problem is the soil around Upland in that part of the area from the mountains is all rocks and sand. And so the track would not set up. There's no clay at all. And so it was just like rocky nightmare and we built this whole thing, and then it turns out my, my dad, he didn't tell me till like last year, but he was extremely pissed off that I had built this track because he had just gotten the land smooth enough that he could mow the seasonal weeds without tearing up and causing fires by kicking rocks everywhere and stuff. 
And of course we just wrecked it. And even later when I was a teenager, uh, I'd have to help mow the, the, the land back there. And I, all my, so it was his and... property. It was his. Land. Oh yeah. No, it was oh, at okay, my yeah. parents' house. Okay. But as a teenager, I'd have to go mow the weeds, you know, so we didn't have fires and, and problems. And so right. the, all the jumps and berms were still there and I have to push the mower up and over you know, the berms. And it's just like your sprocket hanging up on the transition, you know, the mower would catch and rocks that go flying and sparks and it. It was on my payback, I guess. You know, it made it a lot harder. <laughs> well, let's, but, let's shout out to the, the old man, right? That's awesome. Yeah. It's cool. Like, yeah. Or he, you like know, <laughs> he did drive me to a lot of races, and he took Dave Vanderspeck and I to some things. And he was, you know, he was definitely supportive. But um, so with the track, we actually built a little starting gate. I think BMX Action might have had a, a write-up at one point about how to build a homemade starting gate yeah. with hinges. And so we did all that. And... But it's just the problem was like it was just rocky and it, it wasn't that fun. So once I got on real clay tracks, you know, doing ABA races, it was done. Right, um, right. And you you said your I, dad gave you rides with Dave Vanderspeck. You guys were buddies. Yeah. So the, well, we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, <laughs> there's okay. Dave. You know, once I got deep into the freestyle stuff, Dave stayed at my house fairly often. Partly because I think I had an older sister and he was interested in in her. <laughs> you know it was hey, an excuse at least to being honest. <laughs> no i mean you know and i live right up the street from the pipeline so he'd come in to ride the pipeline or for contests and um he would stay at the house for a few days cool. and you know he was god how old was he then he was like 20 you know and i was 14 13 right it was it was weird but it, so he got a gig or i might have been me with larry wilcox a bmx show do you remember the show chips you know the tv show yeah so Larry Wilcox, Ponch had, or no, it was uh, John. He had um, a thing like Larry Wilcox Productions, and he put on BMX shows, as you guys are familiar with, oh. and kind of like, you know, a Gale Webb type show back then. He'd put them on right. at schools. And so yeah. I think I got the gig to do the thing. They called me up because I was, by then I was publishing this magazine. Uh, but I, I needed a, a proper writer. I wasn't a great freestyler. And so... Dave Vanderspeck happened to be there. And so we both went off and did this show, but we didn't have a ride. So my dad had to take a day off from work and we put his, uh, our bikes on the back of his Cadillac and he drove us off to some elementary school in San Bernardino and we did a show. So, uh, the one time I've ever done a show. You did and it with I, Dave Vanderspeck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I wasn't very wow. good. So we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. This is, that's, he's a, you know, a very interesting character to me. So yeah, he, he was a great guy. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Wow. You got it. So, yeah. yeah. So what were you riding back then? What was kind of your first, first BMX bike and then maybe your first real BMX bike? Um, Cause a lot of us started with crap and worked our way up. <clears throat> I, I honestly mostly had crap. Um, my parents were very supportive, but they weren't rushing out and buying top end bikes you know, for me. So the, I'd look at those red lines hanging on the walls at the bike shop, but I never could get one of those, but probably early, earliest would be like a Webco, you know, base model Webco. And then I did get a race ink about 1982 that the sort of anodized red and gold one with the gold accents. I don't know what frame it is anymore, but, uh, so I had that and that was my pride and joy. And then eventually I got a CW when I was doing a lot of racing. And I think that was a hand-me-down from a friend who then switched over to a GT. 
Um, I got his CW frame and fork and I raced that, but the parts were all kind of mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah, I would get a little bit of money here and there. And I'd get like most kids, I'd go to the bike shop and I'd get some pedals or maybe a new brake lever. I never had, you know, like a top flight bike. Um, but I think what most kids learned is you could get a lot done with just whatever you had. And it was all about effort and ingenuity. Um, at the end, I did have a, a Skyway TA that Dave gave me. I traded him. I ran him an ad in my magazine, and he gave me a bike in exchange. So it was an ad for his Curb Dogs group uh, to sell stickers and book t- you know, shows or whatever. So he sent me that. Um, all my bikes are gone. I have no original stuff. I sold them all in the mid-'80s, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, a TA would be yeah. cool um, to have the TA for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, you know, like a lot of kids, we just sort of made do once freestyle took over, you know, we had to figure out how to convert these race bikes into freestyle bikes. I, think I ev- saw you did, too- I saw you did a little bit on that on, in the um, book, which was obviously a segment out of tricks and more, which we could go into a little bit, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, t- to back up a little bit, you know, freestyle really took over for us after probably about the end of 83. And part of that was I lived in Upland where the pipeline was, and they were holding these King of the Skate Parks contests right in my backyard. So I would go, and I'm in, if you look at a lot of the old BMX action magazines, I'm in the background of some kid staring through the fence. <laughs> um, and so we loved racing, but it was hard to get to the tracks. It got expensive. You know, you had to, all this, the admission wasn't a lot, but you had to constantly pay your, you know, for fees and stuff. And, um, so freestyle just became more the accessible thing that we could all do. And so we started doing more of that and then off we went. And what year would you figure you made that transition? Mid 83. I think it was that really early. taken over. Yeah, you guys um, were like photo... five years ahead. <laughs> I'm Sorry? just saying. I think you guys were about five years ahead, at least from us in Canada, where we were. Yeah. I mean, BMX, to me, I just learned about BMX probably in about 84. So it's just, it's just interesting. Well, there's a photo in the book. Um, I forget which page. My, page 30. Um, and it's actually a photo by John Carr from from BMX Plus. And it's Mike Dominguez at the pipeline getting a, a pretty amazing air. And if you look in the background, yeah, I'm one of the kids awesome. watching. So I'm in the background with my best CW friend. CW jersey, right? I'm in the CW jersey because yeah, I, I either I, I may have raced that day at the park or I was just always wearing that jersey because I loved it. And so that. Biggie's going. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a huge error. It's like yeah, that would yeah. be huge today too. I mean, there's no difference. Yeah. Like, it's incredible. Anyway. Yeah, it's nuts. So that's before he even got sponsored. I think he was on Vans at the time. Mike Dominguez, okay, yeah. But what that tells you, that slide, because I found it down at the BMX Plus archives when I was looking for my pictures, it's dated September 83. Wow. So by then, you know, we were already kind of watching all this freestyle stuff going on. Well, you were and... right in the mix. You were seeing it firsthand. Like, this is new. Look at that yeah. bike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that you know, I was kind of a, a victim of circumstance. I happened to live there. I mean, if I had lived somewhere yeah. else, I wouldn't have seen all that. Right. And so I think that had some influence in drawing us away from racing too. Of course, uh, it was just. I mean, how could you not get excited about some guy ripping a nine foot air? <laughs> so, I mean, never, never have seen Upland in person. Just, just through photographs. 
give me an idea like how deep is the bowl was it was over vert right like when you got to the you know you were over vert by the time you got to the top and yeah um there in the tony hawk film that just came out a few months ago i think he refers to it as fucking gnarly you know um <laughs> The 70s parks were not built like today's parks. They were pretty loose in terms of um, uneven concrete. They had real coping, very deep bowls. I don't know what the thought was back then when they built them that way, but definitely they loved vert. And you'd have you know a three-inch lip of actual pool coping, um, uneven transitions, corners that were weird. So pipeline, I think the deepest bowl there was 15 feet. And their smallest bowls were still, were still eight or nine feet, and they were. It wasn't a beginner's park. There was no easy. The only place that maybe was simple there, there was a, like a two hundred foot long embankment. It was kind of like a drainage ditch style thing where you could do fakies back and forth and and that sort of stuff. That was the easy part of the park. The rest of it, um, the bowl that the, the, that was part of the pipe, um, I want to say it's twelve feet deep, with about two or three feet of vert. And very uneven. So the locals they knew thinking where that you were going to jump out of it. I don't even think they processed that. When I don't know it. And everything was fenced in. So every feature in the park, every bowl was ringed by a chain link fence. It was like three feet of room maximum. So mm-hmm. like parks now, people will run a line through the whole park and they'll do, you know, 30 seconds worth of stuff. You were, kind of kept corralled in whatever bowl you were working with at the time. And you couldn't just hop around the combi bowl, which was probably more favored by the skaters, um, was even worse. You know, it was a large square bowl, a large round bowl, and they were connected by a big hip and then kind of a drop in channel, but it was very slick, tons of vert, huge coping. Like it was scary. And as little kids, you know, we would roll in there and it was frightening and you just loop around and try not to fall over and, um, you know, I rode there a fair amount, but I was, you know, drop-ins and little tiny airs are kind of the maximum for me. I just didn't have it. Um, didn't have the nerve really. What year so, was this park built? 1977. 77. It closed, it closed basically in 88. And then I think they bulldozed it in 89. Cause I was there when they bulldozed it to get pictures. Were there parks around California, like other than Del Mar and the pipeline like in the 70s craze was there oh yeah one? yeah yeah yeah. dozens we've got one on the east coast that's uh kona in florida that i feel like i'm more familiar with than most people on the east coast would be and it's the same idea it's inconsistent transitions it's mm. like they poured the concrete but you know it's not like today where they smooth everything out everything's consistent which is kind well, of cool in a way yeah and they were all different you know like yeah, pipeline yeah. had the pipe you know, they were influenced by that. Del Mar was totally, totally different. The funny right. thing is Don Hoffman, who built the pipeline, was actually trying to build a park in Florida with some business partners. And that park didn't, that fell through or that deal didn't happen. So then he came back to his parents and said, hey, what if we build one here in Upland? And that's how he built it. But No kidding. Um, huh. Yeah. So it's still there? It's, no, I mean, like, 88 so, said it closed down, but I mean, is it under dirt? Like, it's, buried? No, they did tear it out um, in terms of they they broke up the concrete. The original uh, pro shop building is still there, basically where you would check in and pay your dues and probably the restrooms. That is still there, and the Hoffmans still own it. And, in fact, inside of there, he's got all of his archives of stuff that 
he's collecting for, I don't know, a movie or, or something, but the rest of it was turned into an industrial park. Okay. Um, I was there actually about two months ago, just looking at it. Yeah. All good things come to an end. What was the first contest that was there? I don't know if it was King of the Skate Park or was there like something pre-King of the Skate Park? I, you know, I definitely, you know, there were skate contests there in the 70s. In terms of BMX, it was some iteration of King of the Skate Parks. I don't know if it was called that at the time. The AFA kind of came around, you know, early 80s. I'm not a historian there, but I think probably the earliest one with the pipeline would have been 82 or 83 in terms of a BMX vert contest. Uh, I know I was at the 83 one. I'm pretty sure I was at the 83 one. I know I was at the 84 because I have pictures uh, from the first one. It was in like March of 84. Um, so bring us back to that 83, 84. I mean, they may get jumbled up in your memory, but who who were the, the key riders in those uh, contests? And and we, we may know them now, but were they known back then or were they still all unknowns? <clears throat> Yeah, I, I mean, by then you, you had Eddie Fiola was was decently yep. known. Uh, Ted Emmer, uh, Mike Dominguez was in there. Donovan Ritter, Brian Blyther was was riding in them. He in the earliest ones, I don't think he was in the '83 one. By '84, he was riding for Huffy, um, and he he rode there. Mark McGlynn. I'm trying to think of '84. This is Hugo Blyther. Gonzalez. Blyther, you said yeah. Blyther, yeah. Right, there's a good yeah. photo of Blyther, I think, in your book somewhere. I, I remember one of the first magazines I personally was able to buy was the September 85 uh, BMX Plus with Hugo uh, in in the full pipe, like mm-hmm. just right up there, you know. Cool. Amazing picture, amazing. Yeah, I was, I was there. He was fun to watch, and um, I just actually ran into him a couple months ago at the Old School Reunion. I hadn't seen him since I was 14. I'm 51 now. It was kind of wild to, to say, hey, Hugo, remember me? But um, <laughs> Hugo, you know, yeah, he was there a lot of the early ones. I think um, I'm missing some names, but some of the flatland guys like Woody Itzen, and they didn't really ride the parks a whole lot. They they raced, they did flatland. I know they could ride vert because I went out to the this dirt track with them once, but they weren't regulars on that circuit. Once it, once it kind of diversion you had flatland and then vert it was although a lot of them were expected to compete in both categories but yeah anyway kind of back to your question you know it was pretty wild back then it it was uncharted territory for the most part and there was a core group of maybe 12 riders that could really do well in those parks and that was it it was a small scene and and judging by your photos and photos i can remember from back in the day i mean they were they were going big, like even as John said, for today's standards. And and we talked to Maurice about this a little bit. Um, Hugo was a guy that would just send it. Like, I think he's so underrated for, for you know, that 80s era uh, vert rider. Like, he, he was a guy that was pushing the limits, um, from what I could tell, all the time. Yeah, uh, there were certain guys, and I'm not going to name names. Some of them competed and were kind of conservative on what they would do just so they didn't crash and they could have a good run that was able to complete the run and it looked good for the judges. Others just sort of went for it. And Hugo was one of those. Vanderspeck was similar. They tried stuff that no one else would try. They often crashed, but I think because of that, they pushed the boundaries out further. What could be done? Um, and you had other writers who, you know, they had their style. Um, you know, Brian Blyther was 
you know, you hear he's smooth as silk or whatever, but he was, and he'd show up and he'd, he'd get these lofty nine foot airs, no problem. And he did practice a lot though. He lived right by the park and was there all the time. And I mean, he had obviously talented, but, um, he worked at it, but then, you know, guys like Hugo lived up North Hugo and Vanderspeck and a few others. And so they lived seven hours away from the pipeline in Del Mar. So they didn't get a chance to ride those parks much. So they'd show up for a contest and have like a day's worth of practice, you know, the day before, and then they just have to go for it. Right. And they tried stuff though, which made it cool. So what's the what's the craziest thing you saw in that sort of 84, 85 era? Um, side hacks in the pool. <laughs> and there's foot, you know, I forget which magazine. I think it's it's well known. Tenth tenth anniversary of BMX Action had some side hack pictures of them in the pool. I remember. Yeah. yeah. Dale Perez and I forget who else was, was part of that. But that pool is nuts on just a regular crappy 80s 20-inch bike. But you take a side hack in there. And that, that was crazy. I mean, I've seen it all. What's funny when I went and did this book, I was thinking about all the crashes that I witnessed and there weren't that many. I don't remember injuries really. I don't remember people getting concussions, you know, for as dangerous as that stuff was somehow it worked out. You know, and I asked Don Hoffman who owned the pipeline, I said, you know, how often did you have broken bones there? And he said, Oh, we had like broken wrists once a day, you know, it was fairly common. But I don't remember it in BMX. I remember a few heavy bales, but I don't ever remember an ambulance cart carting anyone off. I mean, this is this is great, but it's it was really dangerous. Yeah. You know? I mean, <laughs> then again, you look at what guys are doing now, and it's really nothing. But what what's but interesting probably... to me is that you're showing the pictures in your book of guys going every bit as high as dudes do now, and there's only a handful of guys that ride BMX that can actually go big. I mean, I would say like 1% of BMXers can actually boost a quarter where you're really impressed, you know? And you had a handful of guys doing it out there. And it's just on, interesting that, yeah. That, on shit bikes. Ex- yeah, like, 30, 40 years ago. I don't know how old is this, 80? That's like 40 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's amazing to me. Well, and I think you were going to ask me at one point, you know, how what was Mike Dominguez like as a writer? And he was a one, he was a really nice guy. Him and Brian Blyther were really good friends. They still are to this day. But those stories of Mike showing up and hand tightening his wheels and kind of <laughs> slapping a bike together and then going in the park, they're all true. Like, I don't yeah, remember. Show up at a practicing. contest, pedals, just loose, do the contest, put the bike yeah. back in the bag, and show up at the next contest, put it back together. That's what I heard he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he would, I, I mean, he's still awesome. He's still awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and he, and he just, you know, I think there's some talent, but he he would just show up and ride. I don't remember, you know, because I lived in Upland and I was at the Pipeline all the time, you'd see people coming in and practicing. Eddie Fiola was there all the time. Uh, I think he even left his bike. He had a spare bike at the pro shop They just to leave it there so he could ride. When he, You know, Blyther was there a lot. So they did practice. But I don't remember Mike really taking it that seriously. He just had it in him. He just did it. Talent, right. Oh, wow. I saw him at the old school reunion in Cologne, Germany. And uh, yeah, him and Wilkerson and, and Blyther. And they were all just throwing down. And they're all like in the mid 40s at that point. So like, I can only imagine how, you know, 30 years earlier. Yeah. I mean, I think Mike was 15 at the time. 16. Right. Um, I mean, they're not much older than me. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, we were all just kids. It's crazy. So. 
anyway, I, I was not one of those writers. I, I was there, but <laughs> I, I, picked up, <laughs> I picked up a camera instead. Yeah, well, we're glad you did, man. Yeah, so let's touch on that. What what got you into photography? And I know you, you explained some of it in your book, but let's, for the audience, what, what got you into photography to start? Well, you know, I, I was an, I loved BMX, and I loved all that. But I also was a child of an artist. And my mom was a painter, and my dad was an attorney. And I spent a lot of time with her as a child and all her friends who were all you know mostly artists and creative types. And I don't know if that had much of an influence on me or not, but I was always a creative kid. I was always doing projects. I was always building stuff, just doing things. Um, I wanted to make films for a long time. And so before I picked up the camera, I was doing a lot of Super 8 films. And I did stop-motion animation. I did some little, you know, 8-millimeter shorts outside, you know, with my friends, you know, little action movies, whatever. And that was really what I wanted to do. So that might have led into picking up a camera as photography-wise. Um, like most kids, this might even be before your time, but we had the little 110 Instamatics. You know, you get like the little snapshot camera. And so I got one of those, and I started taking pictures of my friends riding their bikes, you know, jumping, just doing kid stuff on, on BMX bikes. And then I took it to the Pipeline King, the skate parks, and took some pictures there. And something stuck with me where I just really... In, in, enjoyed it um it's so kind of tied to this around the same time a friend and i decided to make a little bmx fanzine and we did one we started it in early 84 so like february and we called it bmx and more and what it was was kind of an homage to the bmx action and it was a mix of racing and freestyle stuff and so i started pasting my pictures in there and we never actually finished that magazine and never never printed it, but I was taking more and more pictures. And my mom had a 35 millimeter a, a Pentax K1000, which is kind of like a workhorse of student cameras. And she used it to photograph her art. So she had like seamless paper in her studio and, and lights and all that. And, and I was always kind of asking if I could borrow it and she never would uh, just basically because it was cost a lot of money back then. Um, eventually she let me take the camera out into the driveway and I'd photograph my kids on, uh, not my kids, my friends on, um, the kick turn ramp in my driveway trying to do kick turns and endos and fakies and stuff. And then it just took off from there and I basically got obsessed with it pretty quickly. So this would be early 84. Uh, I was still 12 going on 13. So I turned 13 in February of 84 did you take um, any Super 8 footage of your friends, too? No? I did not. I did not get any any film of that period. So, you know, t I don't know kind of what happened there, but basically I dropped riding as a serious endeavor. I mean, I still went to skate park all the time, but I didn't ride my bike anymore so much as I used it for transportation. And I'd show up at the pipeline with a camera, and I learned quickly that kids like cameras and they like to pose for pictures uh on their bikes so all i had to do was show up and any rider would like yeah, yeah get a shot of me i'm gonna do this you know i'm gonna jump out of this bowl so i just started taking tons of pictures and that led into me being there and brian blyther's riding that day and i started taking pictures of him and somehow i got i got really good pretty quickly i, I mean i had an eye i guess and i maybe picked that up for my mom i mean she taught me the basics of composition and you know painting and I, I was around that my whole life so um started taking pictures constantly and then I got obsessed with uh, wanting to develop my own film and so my sister's 
the father of my sister's friend had a dark room. He showed me one afternoon how to develop film. And so then I started using his dark room on weekends and then it went from there. But wow. So, and, and, uh, like that's got to be something with a camera like that. Cause that's, I mean, that's an expensive camera back in the day, but that's not like top end by any means. Right. And you're taking action shots, which I'm just, I've never shot 35 mil film, um, which I've got to imagine is more difficult with that, with that kind of uh, equipment. <clears throat> yeah. So when I had the little Instamatic, the problem with that one, it was, it was just slow. And you, by the time you push the shutter, you kind of miss the trick. So by shooting a lot of pictures of my friends jumping out in the orange groves and things, it taught me how to kind of watch the arc of a jump or the arc of a flatland trick or, you know, when and get the timing right. Cause I had to be a little ahead of it. Cause that when you push the shutter on this thing and by the time it, there was a, a lag. So, and I started doing the 35 millimeter stuff. It was the same thing. It was all timing and composition I think came naturally. So, um, either I had a good knack for timing or I figured it out early on. And so, I, I use my mom's camera and then eventually I think for my birthday, I got my own 35 millimeter camera and it was just a basic Canon T50, which in 1984 was like a consumer level semi-automatic camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just took off from there and I was just taking pictures constantly. Uh, most of it was like local kids at the skate park. And then once I thought about publishing kind of a fanzine, I needed an excuse to go to the contest and take pictures. Um, the, the other thing that helped me early on is because I was a local at the pipeline and I knew the Hoffman family who ran it, um, because I mentioned earlier, it's all fenced in. If you weren't riding, you weren't allowed behind the fence or inside the fence. And because I knew the family, I talked them into letting me shoot inside the fence, which changed everything. Cause then I was right there with the riders and that normally wasn't allowed for visitors, but being a local kid and they knew me, they, they let it go. Um, and so once I was inside the fence, I was right there and, you know, these guys are making, you know, doing these errors right in my face. Wow. So stepping back to, to, uh, your zine at that time, was there other fan zines out there? I'm trying to, cause that was kind of the, the start of it, but. So I went through this when I wrote the book of trying to figure out who had the first BMX scene and it's not a competition. It's just, I was just curious. Yeah. I'm not aware of any other BMX scene at the time that I saw, but there were a lot of sort of punk skater types at the pipeline. And I went to record stores. I was into music already too. And I probably saw some, some punk scenes hanging okay. around. And so I had the idea to do that. The BMX and more thing, which I mentioned, uh, which came with the people who bought my box set, they got a copy of that magazine. Um, it was basically modeled after BMX after BMX action, you know, we had like a big masthead with a lot of credits and we had a trick team assigned to us and all this stuff. Um, the second zine tricks and more, which came out basically the same month freestyling was started. Um, I don't know if that's the first BMX zine or not. I know Mike Daly from plywood hoods yeah, was agro do, rag. doing agro yeah. rag around the same time. Gork had a zine. Um, we've talked about it. No one seems to know who was first. And if, there might've been someone else. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but it was pretty early. Um, and freestyle itself was just kind of becoming a thing. Freestyling didn't exist yet as, right. a, as a magazine. Right. It kind of exploded sort of 85, 86, you know, 87, there was a fair number of freestyle magazines by then. And a lot of zine zines. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I remember even in Canada, I used to contribute to one, 
that was the West Coast guys, Ken Paul and all the Canadian guys put together. And I used to write some articles for them as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that was probably 87, 88. So what I, was uh, the name of that one, a, Anthony? I forget. Uh, Backdoor. Backdoor. The Backdoor. Yeah. That was one. See, I was way ahead of you guys. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. It's because I'm older. Um, but <laughs> you, only my, got it, you got what? You're 51? Yeah. Two years on. You got two years okay. on. Right. I started early too. So, yeah. But in my BMX and more zine, which I never actually printed, there's a and I put it in the book. There's a little write up talking about how I heard that BMX Action's going to come out with a freestyle magazine, which was freestyle. Yeah, right. mm -hmm. So, that's pretty early. Uh, and, and anyway, so the BMX and more thing kind of evolved into this other one called Tricks and More, which started off the first free issue, first few issues were mostly shots of like local kids at the pipeline and little trick how-to sequences like you'd see in the magazines like this is how you do a whatever but a lot of times we didn't know the name of the trick so we would just say this is a what you might call it you know and so i started printing up copies of that and um gene hoffman who owned the pipeline was gracious enough to put them on the front counter of the pipeline and sell them for me and so all these kids who came in and out there every week um, to ride bmx started grabbing copies of the zine and it spread out all through southern california and then when the pros would show up, I'd take pictures of them and hand them a copy. And then pretty soon, within a few months, I was sort of legitimized and they would just accept me as I was just like another photographer, you know, oh, wow. working for cool. somebody. Um, and I don't know how many copies I actually printed. So I used my dad's copier at his office and his secretary used to kind of sneak toner to me to keep the copier going, you know, on the side. <laughs> oh, I ordered you another thing of toner, Bill. It's underneath the counter, you know. And I used a typewriter at night, and by then I was developing my own pictures to put in there. Um, and I put out the issues monthly. So we're getting deep into the zine here, but the whole thing I really enjoyed doing is I could turn out the zines in two to three weeks. You know, every month there'd be a new... So there'd be a contest, and two, three weeks later, I'd have my coverage out in the zine. And it took freestyling like five to six months for their yeah. coverage to come out. So I was way ahead of the game on all the sponsorship sponsorship changes injuries contest reports all that stuff and i thought that was cool i was like scooping them every time yeah so did you did you have a like a distribution like a i remember with the zine i i contributed to they had a distribution list where you'd send a couple bucks and they'd send you the the zine in the mail or whatever did you have that type of thing or was it all local no i had actual subscribers so they'd send oh, me wow. like six bucks and then i was fretting because the they were sending personal checks written out to the name of the zine and I didn't have a business account. I was like, no, no, it's gotta be in my name. And no, I had subscribers and somehow, you know, this is before the internet, before yep, I yep. even got mentioned in eventually freestyling did a write up about it. And then BMX plus did a, a little snippet about the magazine. Um, word of mouth just got around and then I had subscribers. I mean, in terms of distribution, otherwise I would just leave them at bike shops and sell them at the pipeline. Um, so it it got around, but it wasn't like you had a big cartel website you could order it from. Right, right, right. Yeah. How, how many episodes did you? I did right. eight of issues. them. Issues, yeah. Eight? Eight issues in a span of um, 12 months, basically. And then oh. I did a second bigger zine after so, that. Okay. So for the, uh, for the younger people in the audience, like, you know, 30 or younger, there was no desktop publishing back then. It was all <laughs> copy, paste put it in the the photocopier make a copy add a layer <laughs> yeah. yeah no yeah. no email 
Uh, I did yeah. take it pretty seriously though, and I started getting you know half tones done on the photos, like the little dots, so it would print better. Yeah. Um, I eventually used typesetters to help you know make it look more professional. Now my whole goal was to become a professional magazine. I took it really seriously, and there's a page in the book where. You'll see I sent copies to all the bike companies every month, shaking them down for ad money. And then there's a, a page in the book, same page, where Lynn Caston, who owned Redline, was at the pipeline. And I shook him down for 30 bucks to, to run an ad in a magazine. And <laughs> 30 bucks. He didn't do it. I didn't but do I tried. it. Cheap bastard. Yeah. But, I, but John Carr from BMX Plus was there, and he wrote about it. And he's like, yeah, he's this 13-year-old kid is trying to shake down Redline for ad money. And, and I would awesome. send these to... Every week to Haro, or every month Haro, Skyway, you know, all the companies with my little ad rate card. And it was pretty funny. It's in the book, but it's, you know, $4 for a quarter page ad. And for $2 <laughs> extra, I'll, I'll design the ad for you. And, but I did it. And eventually I did get people to advertise and um, it led into some other things. Do so, you do any of this kind of work now today, Bill? No, I work in the wine business. <laughs> oh, wow. Interesting. But. Okay. I did continue with zine publishing up through college. I did, okay. after I left BMX, I continued on publishing pretty, not large. I, and we do like 5,000 print run sizes of a, a tabloid zine. I did that. I can obviously continue photography for a long time. But, um, you and still I did do punk photography? zines. Not, seri- not professionally, not seriously, but I've, in the last year or two, I've started shooting again. You switched BMX to digital? And, I'm fighting it. I am doing both. <laughs> I do have digital. We can we can get into that. But um, uh, I, I dated a photographer, and I remember she was pro film, but the digital is just so practical, you know. Yeah, it's a reality. Um, I yeah. do I do both, but cool. um, so yeah, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, I think. But oh, sorry, I do that. I'm terrible about that. No, no, it's good. Get me going. I'll take us off I mean, left field. <laughs> if. I'm happy to give you kind of a little background on how the book came about or how sure this all, yeah, or unless you have, for it. yeah, yeah. Nope. So, for it. you know, we've talked a lot about these, these early days in BMX and, and this continued on for a while and we can, we can keep talking about that period. But by the end of 85, I sort of burned out from all this publishing that I was doing and I it was too much pressure. And I started high school and I was getting more and more into punk rock and music and going to shows and stuff. And so I just dropped it all and walked away in 85. And so from 1985, take, take out 1988, because I did come back to do some work there. Uh, BMX was archived in my life, like up until 2000, end of 2020. And so all those photos I took just sat in a box in my garage and it was labeled BMX stuff. And I never touched it for decades. Didn't pay attention to BMX. I think when the X Games were on, I kind of like, oh yeah, like there's Dave Volker. I, I think I remember that guy. You know, I, I'd watched some of that. But other than that, BMX was gone. And to some degree, photography has been gone for 20 something years. Once I was raising kids, all my stuff was stolen in the late 90s, all my, my cameras. So I kind of lost interest. So this, at the end of 2020, I was in kind of a dark place, uh, just COVID, you know, all that stuff was going on. It was in bad time in, in the U S politically, there was a lot of, you know, ugliness, something triggered where I just wanted to go back to that time that we're talking about back in the early eighties where I was a kid and I was having fun and I was doing pictures and BMX was my life. And so I dug out this box and that's what sort of, um, turned into this, this time travel. I went back to that time and kind of, kind of pieced everything back together what had happened and 
trying to figure out why I left. But and, anyway. And so what when you got into that box, obviously you, you got in it for nostalgia reasons, but at some point you're like, hey, I should put this out for guys like John and I that remember this time period and, and whatnot. So when how did that happen? Yeah, so the reason, okay, so I, like I said, I was quite restless at the end of 2020, and I, I was like, I need some exercise. So I didn't have a bike, and so I went on Craigslist and bought a BMX bike. I was like, what the heck, you know, I'm going to go ride a bike. So I did, and I got on, and I was like, man, these things are fun. I forgot how cool BMX bikes are. Like, they're really snappy and responsive. And so I pulled out the box, and it just you know, it was a lot of stuff. I didn't realize I had so many images. I had thousands of them. And so I went online and I kind of poked around and I realized that one, I, I kind of wanted to learn about the new BMX bikes first, like why the sprocket's so damn small and stuff like that. You know, I missed all those transition periods. So then it led me into like, wow, there's a whole community of these geezers that are really into the eighties <laughs> BMX. And, Oh, Hey, I know that guy. I know, you know, all these people I used to know. And so I, I don't, didn't do any social media before this. I had like an Instagram account. I never posted anything. And so I posted one picture on one of the BMX groups and I forget which one it might've been like freestyling or, you know, on Facebook and out of the woodwork, two things. One, everyone's like, wow, where'd that picture of Mike Dominguez come from? I don't, it might've been RL. I don't forget what the first shot was mm-hmm. like, wow, we've never seen this photo before. You know, everyone's been recycling the same photos over and over. Where'd this one come from? And then, at the same time, like eight or 10 people that I used to know from the eighties popped up, said, where the hell have you been? You know, cause I literally just stopped talking to anybody. And so people like Maurice Meyer popped up and just like, where have you been for 30 years? I was like, Oh, right here up the street from you, you know? <laughs> uh, so it kind of led into this thing where I started posting pictures and people are like, this is gold. Like, where's this? This is like a whole new archive of stuff we've never seen of these people like we thought we'd seen all the pictures of bmx from that time i was like no i got more i got more so i started you know putting them out and then it just blossomed from there and people like you and everyone else is like wow we've never seen this stuff and glad you brought them out yeah absolutely thank you yeah yeah (laughs) and so that for me became fun it was like well this is cool i have a lot of this And, and then it sort of triggered in my own mind like okay you know, what happened back then? That was a different time. Like, what was it all about? I had to sort of reconnect it all. So right off the bat, I felt like a book was in this somewhere because there was a story just within my own little life where, and we didn't mention it too much, but at this time I was 13 years old, 14. You know, I left BMX basically when I was still 14. So I was young. And, you know, there's a story there of like this kid who just like loves BMX, picks up the camera, starts shooting all the stuff and then within months he's hanging out with all the guys that are on his walls and on the magazines you know just and and then walked away from it all so i wrote most of the book pretty early uh right when like early 2021 i just sort of spit it all out and i set it aside and then i spent the last year and a half kind of piecing back together that time through photos and asking people like maurice meyer uh, Xavier Mendez, you know, people who are really good archivists of that scene, like fill in the blanks for me. Cause I don't remember certain things. I re- what's weird is when I pulled the box out and looked at the pictures, I remembered shooting all of it. Like I didn't know what I had until I looked at, it. but once I pulled out the negatives, like, Oh, I remember that day it was cloudy. We went here and we got lunch, you know, like every detail came back, which is, I think it's because I didn't rehash it for all those years. I just kind of put a, like, it's not trauma, but like 
you compartmentalize it in your brain and you don't touch it. Yeah. And so when I brought it back out, it was all there and I hadn't, it wasn't tampered with like, I called it revisionist history where you just sort of like kind of change you. And it was strange. Like I, I remembered all of it. There's certain, you know, some things I don't remember, like the whole summer of 1985. I don't remember any of that. I know I was at these contests. I have pictures. I'm in the background of photos. I don't remember being there. So huh. which is kind of wild. And I think I, my solution or, uh, realization is I was probably checked out by then mentally. It just wasn't, I was more into skating, punk rock and other stuff. So I was going through the motions and kind of doing it, but I wasn't really into it anymore. And I left soon after. Um, so yeah, the book is basically all those photos going up from the early days up till end of 85. And then in 1988, I got a call out of the blue from BMX plus John Carr, they they had an AFA contest in Tucson and they needed a photographer like tomorrow. And he goes, what are you doing, Bill? And I said, I don't know. I'll go, you know, and I hadn't shot BMX in three years. So then I came back for about four contests in 88 and then left again. And then that was it. Wow. So, huh. well, so just out of the blue, he had your name in a Rolodex somewhere and was like, this guy yeah, I may photos? have kept in, huh? <laughs> This guy can take photos. Call him up. Yeah, I don't know the yeah. full. It might have been Carl Roth or somebody that called me too. But um, I had kept in touch with Andy Jenkins and Mark Lumen over the years because we would see each other at concerts and, um, you know, we traded zines and that sort of thing. We, you know, between 1985 and 1988. And John, I may have spoken with just about photography once in a while, but I really wasn't involved in the scene at all. And then he had my number and this is back in the day, you know, he called my parents phone basically because it was one landline and I went out and shot some contests and the, this time I was getting paid for it, but so it's different. Anyway, we're kind of skipping around, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so just, just touching on the book, it, it, is it still available? Like, do you still have copies to sell? And if you do, if someone wants to get a copy, how can they go about doing that? Yeah. So I still have some copies left. It's going quickly. Um, as of, this taping i have less than 200 left out of about 1200 that i printed um whether i do a second printing i'm not sure i I haven't put much thought to it yet um they are still available um best way to go is just go to my website billbachelorbmx.com and the information is there i can ship internationally it's very expensive unfortunately to ship internationally it's a big heavy um book it's 424 pages hardcover you know it's not it's like a brick, um, but I can ship worldwide, and I've shipped as far as you know Indonesia, Singapore, wow. Brazil, you know, obviously Europe, yeah, far flung Canada, Canada. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's definitely available. It will sell out probably, I think, by the end of the year. And um, okay, whether and we'll it... put a link, we'll put a link in the description for this podcast as well, Bill. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so yeah, let's let's jump back a little bit. Um, uh, you were putting out the zine. Um, what are some of the highlights of that time when you were still like right into it, into BMX, into photography? What are some of the highlights that come up in your mind in terms of you know a day you shot and maybe something you saw um, that that our listeners would be you know interested in hearing? Yeah, I mean the biggest thing overall was that I was a fan of all these pros, like everyone else was, these guys are on my walls. They were heroes. Uh, just like the racers were right before that, the freestyle guys were icons to me. And within a few months of starting to take pictures and putting out this fanzine, I was literally, you know, hanging out with them 
and I was behind the scenes, so to speak. Um, I had full access to the contests. Um, so I wouldn't say like Eddie Fiola was my best friend, but I could go up to Eddie and he'd know who I was. And it was very strange. So I'm here. I'm still like a fan of these guys, but I'm hanging out with them, which was really wild. And, and I do, you know, in doing the book, I, I think about all those kids who lived around the world who lived BMX through the magazines and had the same feeling, but then they never got to meet these people. And here I was, you know, eating a hamburger with them or doing whatever. So that's probably the biggest highlight of the whole thing was just that suddenly I was part of that scene. And it was a very small scene at the time. In terms of the events, I think the early AFA contests really, I mean, obviously they set the tone for the future of freestyle, but the King of the Skate Parks was cool, but it was, you know, it was just, it was limited. It was like one pool. It was like a one day thing. The AFA flatland slash ramp contest that started pretty heavily in like 85 really changed the game. So in January of 85, the, the AFA held a contest in San Diego and I think they called it the freestyle master series and they'd had about four of them each year. And that to me in January 85 is when freestyle really took off. You know, we show up, um, I think Maurice Meyer might even talk about this contest, but all, all of a sudden Bob Harrow's got, you know, there's these, these bikes are bright colors. Like there's specialized frames. There's, um, freestyle kind of had became its own thing. It wasn't really like an add on from racing or BMX. And I, and people were trying these new tricks. These flatland tricks were just, I, I, I'm not good at naming them cause I've been gone so long, but it's the stuff that you guys know that was like the foundation for everything else was all being invented and developed within days and months. And these guys are learning from each other and it was a very small community and that I'm, I'm just ever grateful that I was part of that and to see that live and just to see like, okay. So Dave Norrie's Gumby, you know, the pretty famous mm -hmm. goofy trick. <laughs> I was there when he was working it out behind the scenes with his mom his, his mom was there hanging out. We were at the contest and I had my camera and I was prowling around and Dave was trying this trick. I talk about it in the book and I think he actually tells the story. Um, and he was doing like a handstand and he got tired. So he kind of laid on his bike and then his mom said, Hey David, that looks cool. You know, why don't you tuck your head under and do this and that? And he figured out how to do the Gumby right there on the, on the spot. And I was taking pictures of it and then he debuted it in the contest. And I think my photo was the first one that ever got published of a Gumby um, but that's kind of what I'm saying to be there when that stuff was being created, it was, it's pretty neat. And yeah, there's new tricks being done now, but that was like the birth of freestyle really happening. I mean, yeah, I wasn't there with the Bob Harrow days doing kick turns and you know, the early, right. early stuff. You were there but for the Gumby though. I was there First for the guy. Gumby <laughs> and that's these guys, early. you know, it was, it was pretty early. These guys were doing all, I called yeah. it like jungle gym freestyle. They're climbing all of their bikes, a lot of sure. balancing tricks. Yeah. Um, Robert Peterson put his bike in his mouth. There's a picture of that. Yeah. I, yeah. Is that in the stuff book? That's, yeah. Uh, that was a different contest a few months later, but you know, it's goofy now, but it started everything. We needed all of that to, to have the yeah. we have today. I, I, I mean, I was there like, you know, when pegs start coming out and that kind of stuff. So, that contest really stands out for me. I felt like I came into my own as a photographer. I really f was happy with the quality of the work I got out of that contest. I shot a lot of pictures. That's the 85 um, AFA. Is that in this book? Yeah, it's San Diego. It's like January 85. Um, you know, that was when the Haro 
kind of the classic horror team was really getting its its legs uh, with Dave Nori, Blyther, Wilkerson, oh, yeah. uh, Rich Sigur. Dream team. You know, the dream, yeah. And from that point on, 85 was a great year for freestyle. You know, right after that, they had the, the Northern California contest, which originally was going to be held at Golden Gate Park, kind of to hit that whole scene with the curb dogs and all that. Yep, they yep. moved it to a, a fairgrounds at the last minute. Um, none of the magazines showed up to that because they heard it was going to be canceled. I was the only magazine there. And of wow. course, I lost all my film. I have like two rolls. Oh, no. Um, but I, I stayed with Dave Vanderspeck on that trip and um, at his house, and Pete Augustine was staying there. And I shot wow. like 20 rolls of film, and I've lost it all. I mean, th- okay, so I say I've lost things. There's a good chance they'll turn up. They could be in my garage somewhere because I have a lot of other photos and things hanging around. Um, so there was that. And then in 1985 was the famous Venice beach contest. There was also uh, one in 84. In yeah. I was at the 84 one as well, which is when I first met Dave Vanderspeck and Maurice and the curb dogs. They all came down for that. Um, that contest, I don't remember a whole lot about the actual event. I had to leave early cause I broke my camera. The second Venice contest in 85 is when, um, David Lee Ross showed up. Uh, the skaters were pissed off at the bikers and were stealing all the bikes. Scott Freeman's dad got in a fist fight with somebody. Um, it was written about, you know, freestyling talks about it. The magazines, you know, it's pretty well documented, but it was crazy. It was like a, a peak summer day in Venice beach in the eighties, you know, and you've got a it's bike Venice contest. Beach. Yeah. <laughs> the Dogtown guys were not happy that they couldn't ride the ramps, you know, the skaters. And so there was all kinds of stuff going on. It was crazy. It was Venice, yeah. And there's tourists yeah. everywhere. Um, that weirdos. Was a great... Weirdos. Freaks yeah. and geeks. Yeah, I love Venice Beach. It hasn't changed much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was peak 80s. Um, right. All that was, I think, just the memories that I take with me. Like, good times. I, I had nothing but fun. And okay, so that same weekend, I stayed with Andy Jenkins at his place. So Mike Daly had flown out from... Pennsylvania with Brian Peters, his friend, and they were staying at my house. And then we went down to stay with Andy Jenkins the night before the contest at Venice beach. And then Andy gave us a tour of wizard publications in the evening. And to me, if anything else, I think that's probably what I love. I, I couldn't care about all the cool bikes they had at, at wizard publications and in all the test gear and all the free shirts that Andy was handing us. I got to see Bob Osborne's dark room uh, where they put the magazine together, the production office. That's the stuff I was really into by then. It was like, I was geeking out big time over, you know, this is the paste up table where they, they glue freestyling together. This is the dark room where they print all the pictures. Uh, here's where they do the photo shoots in the studio. And um, a lot of people don't know, but Bob had his own dark room there. So they had a production dark room that Wendy and this is even before Spike. So Wendy and Steve Gaberson would, would do the most of the photos for the magazine. And then, Bob Osborne had his own personal darkroom that was for his fine art photography. By then, by the mid-80s, he was doing a lot of sort of Ansel Adams-type stuff. But as a photographer, that was like the holy grail to go see Bob Osborne's darkroom. You know, growing up on BMX Action, yeah. and suddenly I'm there, and I'm looking at his stuff, and it, it was cool. You know, Wow. Those magazines were everything, I think, to all BMXers. Yeah. And the fact that you were doing that, I, I can only imagine that must have been a big deal. And- so so yeah. take us Canadian boys back to like was this a big place a small place right. like we 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 could only imagine going to it like yeah 
the building still exists. Um, you can still go visit. But it, it was an industrial park in Torrance, California, which is south part of L.A. I don't know how, how well you know L.A. Kind of between Long Beach and LAX. Um, I don't remember it being terribly, terribly big. You know, it was just a, an industrial um, office type building, a warehouse. I don't remember if the ramp was there yet or not. The, they built that half pipe in the back. Pipe, yeah. But I just remember some offices, you know, with, with uh, glass windows. You can see in there, Andy had an office. Um, you know, Bob probably had one. They probably had an accounting office. And then they had a little warehouse that had racks of, you know, with shirts, maybe some test bikes, some parts, some things they were photographing, things that were donated. Um, and then, like, an area with, um, you know, seamless paper where they could do photo shoots and that sort of thing. It really wasn't that big. But yeah, like you, it was the mecca for BMX, and yeah, I couldn't God, believe man. I was looking at it. I yeah. feel like we're missing out today not having a medium like a magazine that we can all kind of go to and, and just look at and see what's happening. Like, it's all spread out now. We got Everyone's got their own thing going on. And so it's like you could be riding BMX and be totally unfamiliar with this guy's doing but he's also riding bmx and it's unfortunate i feel like i miss that just tangible magazine type of thing yeah it was definitely the glue that held bmx together and i'm sure skateboarding was similar you know you needed that print media worldwide to kind of Mm -hmm. pull everyone in and obviously england had their own magazines and there were some other things going on but Mm -hmm. um I went up to the Frogtown BMX event a few weeks ago and I was talking to the people that own the BMX Action Magazine trademark now. And, you know, there's definitely ideas going around on what could be done to get a print media type project back. The problem is, is just print media is dead in some ways and it's so costly to do it. And how do you do it? And then how, who do you appease? You know, is is it for the old guys? Is it the kids? Yeah. Um, There's a guy. I feel, I feel too that, Nowadays, people want everything for free. I, I yeah. can go on YouTube and watch it for free. I can go on Facebook and watch it for free. Instantly. They, yeah. yeah, they don't yeah. want to, you know, shell out for a subscription mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and honestly, that was some of the biggest feedback I got from the book. I mean, besides specifics about the book, but the fact that there was something tangible to read again and some new kind of BMX history to, to hold on to and, and flip through pages. And actually, I, I really like, I don't read much fiction myself but i like holding a book and actually looking at pictures i don't like staring at monitors all day um so i I know people have some ideas it's just i don't know how feasible it is i want to shoot a little plug to the guys that do heavy uh pedals magazine and it's i don't know if you've heard of them but they're you know they're putting it together and uh, they've got advertisement it's basically a magazine bmx magazine so Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there are people trying to make it happen. It's cool. Yeah, I have a few copies of that. And then it was the it was the challenge or challenger was the other one um, came out a few years ago. Okay. Newsprint. I'm, I'm all. Big, I, I mean, a big thing when I left BMX, I got really into punk scenes, and I have thousands of them still in my garage, archived away. And I don't know what I'll do with them, but um, I, I loved publishing, and I think it's it's sorely missed in a lot of industries. I mean, not just BMX. I think people are clamoring for it. And I don't think it's just old people. I think. I call us old, but I think younger people would appreciate it too. You know, I, I, having something tangible you could read. Um, I think people are tired of looking at their phones. So <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, let's say, you know, 84, if we're going backward, you know, there was 
definitely a lot happening, but freestyle was just kind of like finding its way. By 85, it really took off. It became a sport, and I think bikes were selling like crazy. Sounds like you guys kind of stepped in around that time. Yeah. Um, and I know 86, 87, there was a lot of contests that I didn't go to because by the end of 85, I was, I was out. Um, I think 85 is really when it took off. And it, I agree. I'm glad I was there, you know, and contributed to when, it to some, some degree. When freestyling came out, it legitimized freestyle, I think, in mm-hmm. a lot of people's minds. And, uh, and I think you're right. 85, it just took off. Yeah. Yeah. That magazine changed everything. Yeah. It legitimized it because, you know, if you look at the later issues of BMX action right before freestyling came out, they're, they're trying to feed it in there, but then they were torn, you know, they they could only do so many pages of freestyle. And so the coverage was very minimal. Once they devoted a whole magazine to it, you know, you could get, you know, a lot more coverage. The problem was early on, it was only quarterly and It's funny, I hadn't looked at BMX magazines in a long time, and I went through some of them during while I was working on this book, and I realized that there's only like 30 pages of content in each magazine. The rest is all ads. But the ads were just as important. I mean, that's where people learned about stuff, and they studied them, and they you know created the culture, and it's all important. But mm-hmm. it's amazing how little content really is in those magazines, and <laughs> which was fun for this book because – if you go back and look at the coverage of some of these contests I'm talking about, there might be five or six pages devoted, especially BMX plus because they were still doing a lot of race coverage. Mm-hmm. There's only five or six pages written about it or photos. And I, I have enough photos for like 20, 30 pages. I mean, I think that San Diego contest, the, the full spread that I put in the book is like 25 pages and it's mostly photos, but um, I have a lot more that I haven't right. shown anyone. You know, there's still more there. Um, the, the other thing that was fun about the book is I, I did new writing that was about kind of reflecting back on what happened or maybe the, the linear events that, that transpired. But I also included a lot of my original writing that I wrote back in the day from my fanzine. So there's excerpts from the fanzine mixed in. So you get my, my original scene report from the contest from when I wrote when I was 13 about who crashed, who did first, who, sh- who should have gotten first it didn't you know all that stuff and that's pretty fun a lot of people never saw that stuff you know they've only read whatever freestyle wrote about that's all it's been documented and you know the birth of the freestyle movement books have covered a lot of that as well but it was fun to kind of release new contest reports and i i typed out all the results and all the names and it was fun Um, so there's a lot of history in there if you're a bmx nerd that book's loaded with yeah history and i admittedly I haven't touched... gone through everything i've flipped through all of it and read a lot of yeah. it but there's like a lot in here to read this is gonna take me it's, a while <laughs> it's it's pretty jam my wife was uh you're, you're putting too much into this book it's too, too you know no, just make no. a photo book and i kept telling her no it's got to be more than that it's got to have more into it and, and to make it worthwhile for me so i did my best right. to cram it with a lot of bmx history and i we touched on earlier in my zine i wrote three different over three different issues, I wrote a, a story about, you know, how to convert your bike for freestyle. And that stuff, I think, is gold because it's like, well, these race tires don't work well on ramps. You know, use these tires and try these pegs. And there's only two handlebars that are made right now for freestyle. And But I heard that Harlow's going to have a frame and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I was reading some of that. It's good stuff. It's a total. I just sent copies of the book and all the fanzines off to the BMX Hall of Fame for their library, for the museum. Oh, fabulous. To, part of their collection so that's kind of neat that i got my stuff in there 
you know, it's part of history. Um, Bill, was this cool. a uh, was this an investment to to produce this book? I mean, I'm certainly. I mean, these are beautiful books. Yeah. So, thank you. Um, it was very expensive. So, if you've been following what I've been doing for a while, I was selling prints early on of some of the original pictures, and you know, scanning the negatives, selling poster sized prints to people around the world, and I did that for a while, and that helped. Did two things. One, it helped raise some money to kind of feel like there's a market for this. And it also built up my audience in terms of uh, an Instagram following and stuff. So once I got to a certain threshold, I felt like, okay, I can do a book. I think it's feasible. But at a principle, I really wanted to make sure I was pretty close to having the book done before I did a pre-sell. And back in June, I finally got where the book was close. And I, I had a deadline. I wanted to have it done before the old school reunion, which just happened in September. Um, I launched a pre-sale and was blown away by, by the support and, you know, a lot of people worldwide pre-bought a book, which basically financed the project. There's no way I got two kids in college. There's no way I was going to, um, the, the, it, the whole thing cost me $28,000 to do, wow. which is a lot of money. And that's more than I figured. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. the pre-sale got me past the halfway point. And so I felt confident to do this and I had to pay the printer basically half the money for them to even reserve the print time on the, on the press in order to pay. I had to do it up front. And so I am very grateful for the people that supported the project because without them, it was essentially crowdsourced and crowdfunded. And without them, I couldn't have done it. Um, you know, I'll make, I'll be okay at the end. And, but I did, this was a labor of love. It wasn't a money-making endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, I was happy to share the, the content. I mean, my, my number one goal was to share it, but also not lose money. And I won't lose money. I won't get rich either. I might be able to buy a camera when I'm done. But um, <laughs> Replace that stolen gear, finally. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah. But the book, what it did for me, besides kind of draw me back into this community, which I realized how much I missed it, and how good the people are in BMX and how I had a lot of old friends that I forgot. I didn't forget about them, but I just hadn't engaged with them. Brought me back into the fold. You know, I've since been to two old school BMX reunions. The one last year was really funny because I hadn't seen most of these guys since I was 13, 14. Uh, The last time I saw Mike Dominguez and Brian Blyther as of a year ago was when I caught a ride in their mini truck uh, after a high school party. They were in, in my neighborhood at a high school party and I ran into them. No one knew who they were. And I'm like, oh, that's Mike Dominguez and Brian Blyther. And I had my skateboard and needed a ride home. I'd probably been drinking some wine coolers or something stupid. And, <laughs> right. um, so I threw my skateboard in the back and got a, a ride home in the mini truck, uh, Mike Dominguez's mini truck. And that was probably late 85, maybe early 86. That was the last time I saw those guys. And then I've since seen them. But so the old school reunion was cool because it was like I'd grown up. They all, they've all been hanging out for 30, 40 years. And I went from a kid to some 51 year old. So that was fun, <laughs> but I, but that's been great. Um, I went this year as well. I've been going to this frog town event. I went to the Bob Osborne, um, society. I don't forget what they call it. The tribute thing they did in June. That was amazing. That was kind of like closure for me like to, to come full circle to BMX and see Bob Osborne be honored for all that work he did is that I wouldn't have been here without him, John Carr, you know, these sort of pioneers for photography. Um, so it's been a fun process that sort of reinvigorated me creatively. And, um, I like being around BMX again. I realize there's no money in this. 
you know, in terms of a career, that kind of thing. But, uh, I get to meet people like you guys and, you know, it's, that's, what's been fun. Um, it's very social. Yeah, indeed. For sure. Indeed. Yeah. And John, you've drank some of those wildberry wine coolers back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of notorious for the old wine coolers. The Sarasota's yeah. in Canada, right? 0.05%. Woo! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we won't have to go there right now. So what are you up to well, now, Bill? You said you're in... Oh, go on. Yeah, tell us more. Well, no, I was just saying, you know, I, that was the last time I saw those guys. I did... I did come back in 1988 as a hired gun. So I, you know, BMX plus called and said, we need a photographer. So I did go to some contests and that before we get into where I'm at now, but you know, that was neat because then it was like a whole new crop of riders. I missed 1987, 1986. So when I show up at this contest, I, so I caught a ride out to Arizona in the vision streetwear van with, um, a bunch of young guys, uh, Dan Hubbard, um, Hubbard. Still you know, and yeah, and we rode out there, but all the way on out on the road and, you know, on the, during the trip, it's like a six, seven hour drive. I was like, okay, who are the new riders? What are the tricks they're doing? What are they called? Cause I was totally out of it. And they go, well, there's this new kid, Matt Hoffman. You got to keep an eye on him. He's pretty good. Yeah. And so I ended up in Tucson. I had lunch at a Burger King with Matt Hoffman and some other people. And they said, yeah, this is the guy you got to get pictures of. And so it was weird. I, I, kind of you know over two years a lot changes in a sport like this and those years a lot changed yeah there's a whole new crop a lot yeah all these new guys i mean you had brian blyther and i think rl was at that event but he didn't ride so i, I shot that boy. one and then really the peak of it all was about a month later they had the meet the street two hip contest the inaugural meet the street and i got called down to do that you got some great shots guess... in this book about that yeah thank you when I started putting these photos out, I started slapping up a few pictures of that. And people were like, oh, my God, you have photos from the Meet the Street. That's such an epic event. And I said, really? I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, I just showed up and took pictures. I didn't realize in retrospect that it was kind of the oh, first yeah. street contest. It was, and, it was a changing of the tides, really. Yeah, and street yeah. still, street rules BMX. It's like 90% yeah. of what's happening these days. Yeah. And so I actually wrote the article on BMX Plus from that. I, I did the coverage for them, and I wrote the story. And I remember as a teenager, I was still in high school, that trying to write that copy and trying to – I was conscious that my lingo from 1985 was probably outdated already, and I was trying to make sure it <laughs> sounded cool. And I don't know if they re-edited the copy after I turned it in or not, but it, I read it again this last year, and it's actually fine. It's, it's pretty good. But I remember being really out of touch, like – the pictures were easy because I never stopped taking pictures between those years. I was, I was doing a lot of photography, but so that was the easy part. It was just showing up and like immersing myself back in the scene. And then now you got, you know, Spike Jones is there and Mark Lumen and it was a whole Eddie new, Roman, new, right? Yeah. Yeah. Eddie. Some great photos here. Craig, Craig Campbell. I love um, that. It's like they're using Osborne. freestyle bikes. And at this point it's like, they're kind of become street machines, you know, they're setting them mm -hmm. up with straight cables and they're, and they're getting, I don't know, it's just like this, it, everything's evolving at this point. Yeah. And everyone's took off their uniforms. And this is kind of, I identify with this era. And so does yeah. Anthony, because this is kind of when we really like, whoa, let's do that, you know? Yeah, it, it actually redeemed itself. I mentioned that in the book. It's sort of when BMX became cool again. And and yeah. I, it was a pretty epic event. I didn't know that a year ago when I first started looking at these pictures. I, someone had to tell me it was an epic event. But in retrospect, yeah, you can see, um, and guys like Dave Anderspeck were ahead of the time in terms of trying to ditch the uniforms and bring in the, the anarchy to 
to BMX. Is this Chris um, Moeller here in this little photo up here on yeah. page? Uh, yeah, three eighty four. How cool yep. is that? <laughs> Fiki yeah. wall ride. Yeah, and then that's is that uh, Grosso? Craig Grosso. Yeah. Yep. Wilkerson. And it it was weird because Craig Campbell was there, and he, yeah. I think Craig did the first wall 540 or something like that at that event. Yeah. But I remembered Craig when he was just this kid that, you know, he's a little older than me, but he'd come over from England in, in 85 or 84, first time to the U.S. And now he, I think by now he was living here and doing some other stuff. But it was just, you know, a couple of years went by and suddenly these guys are adults and it, it was wild. Was Grosso the guy that rode the vert ramp naked? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And he kind of got blackballed after that. <laughs> literally yeah. or <laughs> literally yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's what's been fun with this project it's sort of i get to relive that history that i missed and go back through it and people i mean you documented an amazing contest for sure sorry i just thank keep you saying it, but it's <laughs> yeah the cool thing is i have a lot more pictures i haven't shown yet so some of them i'm saving for a new edition of uh, dom's book i'm going to contribute if he uses any of those if not i might do kind of just a zine or something to get them out just because there's no reason for me to hoard them um but so i shot that contest and then about a month later there was one in huntington beach that was similar a street contest but it was put on by the afa it was called stonehenge it wasn't as cool and i think they but it definitely tells you that's when they was switching to street style writing right and then in early 89, I shot the King of Vert finals in UC Irvine, which was actually the 1988 finals, but it was held in January of 89. But that's where you had, you know, Matt Hoffman won, I think, or his first time he went pro, Rick Thorne showed up. You know, it was it, it was another changing the guard in terms Is of Vert. Is that the Enchanted Ramp? No, uh, that was before that, I think. Oh, okay. okay. I think this was an indoor half pipe. Okay. Uh, it was a Ron Wilkerson contest. But that's kind of the beginning of the big ramp era. Okay. Yeah. Um, yep. The two hip. Yep. Ron made it happen yeah. there for a while. Because Stonehenge, I remember that was in a video, John. I'm trying to remember the name of the video. I think it was like Freestyle USA, Freestyle Now. And you had it because we watched it a bunch. I had yeah. it. I remember, and there was some kind of pseudo rock band yeah. that was part of it. And yep. <laughs> Yeah, metal MC. They shot That's a video. It. Yeah, and, exactly. And there's pictures of it in there. It was pretty horrifying. Yeah. I thought it was just not the scene I was into. Yeah. I was really into like <laughs> art rock and indie authors and William S. Burroughs. You know, just weird stuff. But seeing like a cheesy like Beastie Boys knockoff and Bikini Girls it was just not yeah. my thing. Um, yeah, that that was a. There's a video of that on YouTube for sure. You can find it there. And that's yeah, what's yeah. been fun. I've been going back, and I, there's all these videos of stuff, and I'm like, oh, look, there I am in the background, but I'm like 14, you know, and I hadn't seen this <laughs> stuff. I think it's hard for you guys to understand because you've been living this BMX, I assume, most of your life. And for me to just put it away for 35 years and then come back, it's like it's like time stopped in some ways. It's, it's pretty wild. It, all this stuff in terms of BMX really happened before anything else in my life. Which it is, is interesting great. what you're saying, that you walked away from it and your memories are clear. Because mm-hmm. you haven't had 30 years to change and, you're, you know, I guess influence what it is you think you remember. Compartmentalize. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you worded it earlier much better than I did. And I think that's interesting. It, it, it kind of makes you think about how the human brain works and head injuries. No, it, but, you know. it was strange. It was, it was like pure. And so I, I'm, thankfully, when it all came out, I wrote it all down in the book. Like, I wrote most of the book 
last year um, because I want to get that out while it was fresh and the memories were, were clear. And I, so I just kind of went through it chronologically. Uh, like I said, there's, there's gaps, there's negatives. I don't have either cause I lost them or I, I sent them off to the magazines and they never came back. So by then I was shooting for BMX plus super BMX, I think. And they were using some stuff for American freestyler, but I wasn't paying attention. I was just waiting for the paycheck, you know, was, at that um, point. With which, you know, if you can retrospect, it wasn't a lot of money, but it's, it was cool when you're 16. <laughs> um, and sure. nothing, you know, there's still pretty exciting to see your name in the masthead of a magazine on a newsstand. Yeah. That never gets old. And that that was the heyday of magazines, too. There was yeah. freestyling, BMX Action, BMX Plus, American Freestyler, Freestyle, Super BMX Super, and Freestyle. Yeah. There was just so many magazines. <clears throat> Yeah, it was, now we have none. <laughs> and now we have none. Yeah. Well, in part of this process of doing the book, I it's not like I'm going around and making amends because I really did. I left with I would say no enemies, but I went around and revisited people. I went down to BMX Plus and hung out with John Carr, who still works there, uh, editing Mountain Bike Magazine. Um, I went up to Montana and visited Bob Osborne, uh, kind of paying homage to the people that started this for me and it was kind of neat um i've gone to these old school reunions kind of reconnected with people um but i also relied on people in the community to really fill in the blanks maurice meyer was a great asset yeah, you know like because nice i would sure. totally and i would you know i'd have a photo and i'd say i don't know who this is who is this and he said oh that's so-and-so you know and kind of piece it back together for me um especially the later stuff because i just i have the photos but i wasn't really invested in the scene by then Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's neat. I, where this goes from here. I don't know. I don't ride bikes anymore. I mean, I, I have a bike, I tool around the skate park, but it, you're never going to see me do a flatland trick ever. Um, <laughs> I mean, do you guys still ride? John's full time. I, I ride on occasion. Yeah. Every day if I can. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I love it. I, you know, what actually is interesting, I went to the Frogtown Days event recently. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's It's kind of yeah. a, it's up in Northern California. It's a 1970s-style downhill dirt BMX race. Um, I saw the si- photos on Facebook, yeah. Yeah, oh, wow. with a, a side hack class. A lot of the old pros are coming out. The Stu Thompsons, Mike Miranda, you know, a lot of the 80s kind of race superstars. Harry Leary, yeah. Harry Leary, yeah. But yeah. for me, it's kind of triggered even beyond freestyle of like, this is where it started and this is cool to see the roots come back. And it kind of makes me want to race again. I realistically, I don't think I'll do it, but, um, just kind of getting back to that. Like, this is why we did this. Cause it was fun. Right. Um, and I talk about that in the book that after talking to everybody, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the sponsorships. It was about riding bikes with your friends. Um, there's a sequence in the book of, I don't remember how I got there, but I caught a ride, I think with Brian Blyther and we went out one afternoon to this dirt jumping spot in Southern California called Colossus. I think it has a couple different names. Get that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It turns out. So I went there with Brian Blyther and Mike Dominguez and then, uh, Martin Aparijo and Woody Itzen were also there and they're all riding dirt and jumping in the dirt. And you wouldn't think of Woody, you know, riding, uh, launching off dirt or Martin, but, that, no, they not all started Martin. that way. No, well, Woody invented the all... 540, apparently. So yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, but they all started in the dirt like we did. Right, so, right. That's anyway. True. You know, we, we they were riding around with these local kids, and there's like these four magazine pros just show up, start riding their bikes, jumping in the dirt and stuff. And I asked Woody about it 
um, last year. And I said, well, you know, do you remember this? He goes, I don't remember that day. He goes, but all I know is I rode every day cause I loved it. I didn't care who I was riding with or where I was riding as long as I was riding a bike. Yeah. And so I think that summarizes all of it for all of us. And yeah, yep. that's we my takeaway. We all share that. It, it yeah. wasn't, it was just about riding bikes with whether by yourself or with your friends. And it, yeah. Yeah, you know, for me, my dad was so competitive with sports, and I wanted to walk away from that. Whereas BMX was my was just, you know, fun. It, there's no pressure. There's no coaches. It's weird to see coaches in freestyle at this point, but, and I think that I share that with a lot of other people in BMX. It was new. It was like, it wasn't established. It was just fun. It it was fringe for me, and and just BMX bikes uh, to this day are a piece of art to me just the way they're built the way they look especially the double diamond frames like that to me when i look at i just get a big smile when i see a bmx bike especially if it's a, a flatland bike or a freestyle bike there's just something in my heart that's just like <laughs> this is a piece of art this this is a creation that i love oh, we're yeah, such dorks. I, <laughs> yeah i mean at this point like i don't geek out over the bikes as much i it, i mentioned in the book even in the time i was starting to geek out more over lenses and japanese cameras and stuff was really what i was getting excited about rather than bikes you know by by this oh, are you a nikon guy i was a canon guy because i couldn't afford a nikon all are the pros Canon's had American? nikons i thought canon was they're American? all japanese i think uh, oh, I thought Canon. Um, oh, I, know. I had I a, a canon, canon. <laughs> i just switched to fuji though so for digital i'm on right. fuji now but Okay. Anyway, um, I forget where I was going with that, but yeah, thanks. It, you can thank me for that. Sorry. Yeah. No, no that's fine. <laughs> you know, it, it's just it was a it was a neat time, and I think oh, you touched on team sports. You know, I, like a lot of us, we were doing team sports where you had coaches mm-hmm. and you had to practice and you had punishment if you didn't perform well. Not literal punishment, but <laughs> you know, yeah. occasionally, yeah, go run a lap, run the hill, whatever. yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. But BMX, as you said, there were no trainers, there was no guidance, it was self-driven, yeah. and whether that's racing or freestyle, um, you just did it because you loved it. And skateboarding was the same way. And sure. oh, yeah. I think a lot of kids were drawn to those sports because they were free, you know, yeah. it was freedom to do what you want and you could be creative. And you look at a lot of the, the best skaters and a lot of the best freestylers, they're very creative people. They, you know, they, it's creating new stuff out of nothing and not giving up. So. I think that was the allure. Now, yeah, I will. I will admit, modern freestyle with coaches and modern racing is very foreign to me. I went to a track last weekend and just, I don't get it. You know, it's it's different. Where but that's what feel? old people say, right? Yeah, I, <laughs> you know. You're but well I say, touche. <laughs> but the crowds aren't as big as they used to be, so there's something different about it. You know, it's just. But yeah, yeah. you see coaching and pressure and olympics and i guess it's all good i don't know i you know yeah. i'm not that vested in it to really lose sleep over it but right um it was a great time to be involved in that stuff and there was so much going on it was it was revolutionary like you were saying that the bikes the products were changing constantly inventing solutions to problems they had oh my my brake cables getting twisted up what do we do you know mm-hmm. invent something uh, pegs, you know, back then they were still using a lot of grip tape on bikes and yep. Um, platforms and yep. Yeah. I, I'm glad I was part of it and do it. Yep. I mentioned the book, but do I miss, do I feel bad that I missed 30 years? No, I, 
I had other things going on. I feel like I did my time. I had my role in the industry at a, at a pretty pivotal time. I've contributed later now with this book. I've added my, you know, what I did. I, I contributed to the, the BMX history, basically. Um, I don't feel like I missed much over 30 years. It just... We might have yeah. missed some awesome photos of the last 30 years if you're involved, but uh, we won't Definitely. hold it against you. <laughs> well, I must say, though, because I've, I've picked up books by Mark Noble, and I, I don't have Jared's book, but, you know, seeing the photos from that period after me, and obviously Spike Jones and all those people, you know, it it really is amazing to see the amount of work and the quality of the work that came out during those years. And so that was their time to shine. You know, I had my moment, and oh, yeah. I'm fine. Uh I am having fun taking pictures now, though, but I don't use a lot of lights. <laughs> Everyone's got tons of lights now on their pictures. Yeah. You know, flashes and three or four yep. strobes set up. I, I don't do any of that. I'm old school. Yep, yep, yep. So, well, uh, what else? Shout um, out to all those photographers out there. I'm thinking Rob Dolecki is a big name right now. Zelinsky's another guy. These guys are they're keeping the faith, you know, keep doing it. So Yeah. No, I follow all of them, and it's fun to see the work. Um, and it's, you know, I must say it was a good time back then. All, all those pros are really nice. You know, Martin was a great guy to be around. Uh, Woody Itson, Eddie Fiola. Uh, yeah, and there's a were... great segment in this book with Martin, and I know there's a lot of Martin fans out there, myself mm -hmm. included, uh, Brad Rose included. So, Brad, if you haven't got this book yet, you should get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, if you have a second, I'll tell that story. So, yeah, you know, I'd love to. But, I'd love to. I mean, when the zine took off, it was wild because suddenly I was getting the, not the attention of these guys. I use a, the kind of analogy that if you have a camera, it'll just draw these guys like magnets because everybody likes to have their picture taken. So, but, you know, pretty soon within a few months, I had, you know, like Martin's phone number and I, I could call him and set up a photo shoot and he'd actually show up on, I don't know if it was a weekday or weekend and he'd meet me in some spot. But, of course, being a 13-year-old or 14-year-old, I didn't pick anywhere cool, like down by the beach or anywhere that looks nice. I, I picked some abandoned parking lot in Upland, and he met me there, and we did this photo shoot. And then he did all his tricks, uh, ran around, you know, got got potentially some great shots. And then I went home and, like like usual, developed the film pretty poorly. So the photos that are in the book are pretty muddy, but it's just kind of a, you know, it's a lost opportunity to have some great photos of Martin, but at the same time, the fact that, you get uh, Martin Aparillo to come meet me in a parking lot to take pictures for my little fanzine was a triumph in itself. So, well, it's I'll cool. look at it a little different. I I see Flatlanders liking a spot because it's a good spot to ride, not because the yeah. beach is in the background. And I see photographers let's well, take a picture of this Flatlander on this crazy obstacle because it's like scenic behind. I'm like, the freestyle, the bike riding is what needs to be the focal yeah. point. So that's how I look at it. So don't feel bad. No, I, yeah. Although this parking lot I picked was on a slope oh. and it was about 40, 40 <laughs> well, minutes from his case, house. In that case, yeah. all right, you should feel bad. But I couldn't <laughs> drive and, you know, I just had to get him to come meet me somewhere. But the cool thing is he showed up and, you know, and how we coordinated all this without cell phones and texts and emails, I don't know. It just happened. Yeah, how did we do um, it? The 172, it, well, isn't it? 14-year-old four, me would be really stoked to get Martin Aparillo to show up anywhere. Yeah. Right, and he's well, still doing it. Yeah, and you know, and I was—I I mentioned in the book, but this stuff wasn't lost on me either. I was still blown away that I, I was getting these guys to take pictures, and um, and I was hanging around with them. You know, I, 
I was a fan, just like they, you know, all these other kids. I, I have to ask because it just keeps running through my head that maybe you lost a little interest because you immediately were able to go right to the top. You know, like that. It kind of. Yeah. I wonder if that took something away. You know, well, I've already met all these dudes. Maybe I'll go on. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I. It's a thought. I probably could. I've mentioned it. You know, I probably could have stayed on and become editor, photo editor of BMX Plus, something like that. I mean, John, I talked to John and there's a story in the book about meeting him. And, you know, he wanted me to shoot for them more, but I didn't have a car and I was 14. I couldn't get around. And so, yeah. I think the reality was I was just becoming more of a teenager and I was just getting more interested in music and going to concerts and running around with my little skater friends and causing mischief and that kind of stuff. And I think it just, and they, you know, they made fun of the BMX guys because of the uniforms and they thought it was dorky. So. And you were young, you were young. You got into it when you were younger than we were. We were probably 17, 16 when we really started getting into it. And And I think that by that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of a, a theme in the book. Is it sort of that transition between childhood and teenage years? It just yeah. that landed right in that moment, and it was yeah. short lived. And then I moved on, mm-hmm. and that it was probably meant to be that way. Yeah, nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. We all choose our path. <laughs> exactly. You know, my my one regret probably is I didn't stay with photography as a career. I was going to, and I had plans kind of along those lines, and then I ended up in college with. Um, got a degree in anthropology because I wanted to be a, a National Geographic photographer. And I thought having a really broad, you know, humanities background would really help me with that. And then, like a lot of people, you graduate college and then it's just reality sets in. Like, I, I got to get a job, you know. And, it, <laughs> and I kind of went a different route. And I stayed with photography casually for a while. I made some films and did other things. But I didn't stick with it as a career. And I you know, whether I should have or not, it's kind of my only regret that I didn't try at least. And now Um, you're in wine. Yeah. By accident. Like distribution, uh, operations. So I was a winemaker for 20 years or not quite 20 years. Uh, I started in the wine business basically because I needed a job and where I live up in Sonoma, Napa is all wineries. It's kind of the premier California wine destination. Um, I needed a job and I had a friend from college that was working in the business and, he, you know, suggested I just get a job as a seasonal um, work, kind of moving hoses around, you know, dealing with the grapes and that kind of stuff. And then it took off from there. I mean, it's it's been fine and it's a good way to make a living. But, um, you know, it's a, you get so far into an industry at some point, it's like, well, now what? You know, I can't change now. But now that my kids are in college, you know, once they get out, I can kind of maybe take some more risks. But what I am doing now is I'm taking pictures again, which is important. I, I basically stopped for about 20 years. And so now I'm back shooting, trying to shoot at least once a week, you know. And I started with BMX and skateboarding just because I know how to do that. And I found that that instinct, the timing, that all came right back. So um, where I go from here, I don't know. We'll see. It's fun cool. to be back. Yeah. If, Hell yeah. if anyone starts a magazine, I'm available to, to hire. <laughs> You can pay. You can pay Bill. Well, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, Bill. I think this has been great. The book is fantastic. Anybody that's a BMX fan and re- appreciates the '80s, you're going to love it. I mean, without a doubt. Thank you. I've I've had quite a few people buy it who are younger than the '80s era, and they bought it just for that reason. They want to have that '80s history and that foundation in their collection to see where it all started. And so I think that's really neat. I, I'm just, 
you know, plus plenty of older guys have bought it and uh, a couple women, believe it or not, but almost, almost all guys. <laughs> There's a few out there. Um, yeah, yeah, I know some young guys that really want to know all the history, too, for sure. Chris Silva is one of those guys, and Zach Newman. Zoom he in. knows yeah. more about the history of BMX than I do, and he's 32 years old, so go figure. <laughs> yeah, and on another level, a lot of the pros who are in the book or people who were there at the time that were, are in the book have really come up to me and just said, you know, this was like the high school yearbook we never had. Right. To see this document all these years later, we never knew it existed. And then suddenly you're handing this to us and it's like our youth all encapsulated in this book. And so they, that's just as rewarding to me to say that, you know, I, I documented something that was really important to other people's lives as well. And they can kind of cherish that and, and share it. So, um, it's like a time capsule, man. That's half of it. (laughs) But, yeah, it's crazy yeah. to think this book was just sitting in that box for all those years, you know, yeah, waiting to. Just, it's <laughs> so nuts. grateful that you you come to you fruition. Rediscovered it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. You know, I I tossed out some of my other BMX stuff. I got rid of most of my trophies. I have a few. Uh, you know, my bikes were gone a long time ago, but I kept the photos. I've always been very meticulous about keeping any sort of art type stuff I do, and I categorize that as art. So I just kept it in this box. I wasn't going to throw it away. But I didn't have any interest in re- going back to it or looking at it. And then something triggered it. Maybe my wife says it's a midlife crisis. I think it was, I don't know. I think it was just a dark time during COVID and other stuff and, and midlife, you know, and just wanting to go back to a different time in your life and see where, where you Were you, you came working from. from home during COVID? Because I know a lot of no. people got free time over COVID because of that. No, I didn't know? have any free time. Like the, the wine business... Um, at least people where I was. More. That didn't slow down at all, right? <laughs> people drink more. Yeah, right. people drink a lot, and the supply chain got worse. So right. it made it. I was busy. I went to work every day, but well, that wasn't it. But it was something triggered it, and it just. It, and it's been a really fun project to go back and just see like how much I loved all this stuff, and um, to be able to share it. That's cool. why I did this. Again, it's it's not about there's no money in this. It's just the fact that there's all these people around the world that are really enjoying it now, and the the feedback's been great, and I really appreciate it. But as I said earlier, I couldn't have done it without everyone's support. And it all started with posting one or two pictures on Facebook, which I I never really hung out on Facebook anyway. But that started the whole thing, and uh, it's it's been neat. I just love seeing smiles on people's faces when they see this stuff. Well, I think I can speak for most BMXers out there. Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Agreed. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Very welcome. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. I, th- I think I hope people get something out of this. It's, you know, there's a lot in the book. It's almost like you need a read along to go along with the book and tell the stories. But I think if if you haven't bought the book yet, I encourage you to do it before it sells out. And if you already have it, I think this will help kind of explain a little more of it on on another level. Um, and just glad we're all part of this. Me too. Amen, brother. All right. Yeah. Thanks again, yeah. Bill. Really do appreciate yeah. it. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Have a good evening, man. You too. See you guys. All right. Cheers. You're listening to Banter, a BMX podcast with John Dowker and Anthony Berardi. <laughs>